cost a lot less to make a bunch of internet content than it does to put a lot of tanks in Syria. You're listening to War College, a weekly podcast that brings you the stories from behind the front lines. Here are your hosts, Matthew Galt and Jason Fields. Hello and welcome to War College. I'm Matthew Galt. And I'm Jason Fields. Facebook. Most of us use it even if we hate it. On August 31st, Facebook deactivated eight pages, 17 accounts, and seven Instagram accounts it deemed inauthentic. Headlines rushed to point to this as further proof that Russia was attempting to interfere with the American electoral process in the run-up to the midterms. The truth is something more complicated. Here to help us get to that truth is Graham Brookie. 24 hours before it pulled the pages and accounts, Facebook alerted the Atlantic Council's Digital Forensics Lab Brookie is the director and acting manager of the Digital Forensics Lab. He's also a former White House staffer who sat on the National Security Council and advised the Department of Homeland Security. Graham, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, guys. Okay, so you and your team have probably been over these pages more than anyone else. What is the nature of them? You know, what kind of politics were they trying to uh, influence? What's your take on it? So the the interesting thing about the pages that Facebook took action on yesterday, and to be clear, so it, it, Facebook took action against a, a total of 32 assets, including a number of accounts, a number of Instagram pages, and then a number of Facebook pages. And the difference between Facebook accounts and Facebook pages is a pretty big one in the sense that Facebook accounts are individual users, whereas Facebook pages are are places where communities are built and come together to communicate and coordinate about, you know, whatever that specific page's interest is. Uh, and so the the thing that we were alerted to at the DFR lab of the Atlantic Council was eight specific pages that Facebook took action against. And among those eight pages, what we saw was a very specific tactic of looking at specific demographics with one thing abundantly clear or one overarching goal that was abundantly clear. And that is that they sought to promote divisions and set Americans against each other. Uh, so rather than you know bringing us closer together uh, at a time of polarized politics, these the content, the language, the the kind of coordination was to to drive us further apart than closer together. What we saw on these pages is behavior, tactics, language, and content that were in some instances very similar to accounts that were run by the Russian troll farmer, the infamous St. Petersburg troll factory from a period of around 2014 through 2017. Okay, and are these specific pages, do you think, did the Russians have a hand in it? One of the hardest things about identifying disinformation or identifying uh, influence operations is attribution. And that is to say it, it's extremely hard to say with 100% confidence that it was Russia behind it. And frankly, uh, Americans do a pretty good job of generating a lot of hyperpartisan content on our own. So that's point one. But point two is, the again, the approach, the tactics, the language, the content on these pages that, were, that Facebook take, took action against this week correlated extremely highly with 
the you know approach tactics language that were being put out by the IRA or the Internet Research Agency between 2014 and 2017. So is it is that a way of saying uh, we think it was Russia? I, I think that the behavior correlates pretty highly. Uh, is that a way of saying we know it's Russia? Uh, not quite yet. What betrayed it as possibly a Russian disinformation campaign? What are the similarities there? Facebook identified it as inauthentic behavior. And, and frankly, at the DFR lab, what we do is open source research. And so we wouldn't have any way to verify that independently, mostly because we don't have access to all the all the data and the platform that Facebook is running. Uh, but what we can say or see using the kind of open source methods that the Digital Forensic Research Lab is is known for and that we use every single day is that a number of the language patterns, a, a lot of the tactics and behavior uh, were the same. And so it, let me start with language patterns. There were a lot of mistranslations that are not necessarily familiar to any amount of slang anywhere in the United States, whether that's you know a southern dialect or whether that's a, a northeastern dialect. There were very specific grammar errors that are most familiar with or that correlate most highly with Slavic languages, of which the largest is obviously Russian. So that is typically a telltale sign. And what we're talking about here is grammatical changes in in articles specifically. The, a, an, those those articles in front of words are are constantly mistranslated. And so if that's a telltale sign that's holding democracy together, that's probably pretty flimsy. But some of the other telltale signs include behavior in terms of audience growth and a focus on really, really hyper-partisan content or topics, migration, like racial issues in the United States right now, like gun control, and, and at the top of the news cycle. And again, it, this content is designed to insert itself into very real conversations that we're having and then drive both sides further apart. What is interesting about the pages that were taken down this week is the is the degree of sophistication that they used. So they were looking at, at very 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 specific demographics. The biggest one, the biggest page that was taken down was a page called Resistors, which emphasized the sisters in Resistors. It was a page that's mostly focused on feminine content. Uh, there was another one called Atlan Warriors, which is a, uh, a reference to Aztec warriors, and that page focused on the Latin American demographic. There is one called Native Progressives that was focused on the Native American community in the United States, and there are a few others that were focused on African American communities in the United States. And the focus, in at least on the pages that were taken down this week, was activism on the left of the American political spectrum. When we're talking about activism, I was wondering, does this translate into physical action? Are people going out on the street to protest because of some of these pages? Absolutely. And that's that's another degree of sophistication that that the IRA, at least in the 2016 elections during those influence operations, tried to do a little bit with a few protests that were based on racial issues in Texas and a few other instances. But what we saw with the pages that were taken down this week was that 
there was a key focus, at least tactically, on growing as much of an online audience as possible with really kind of engaging or emotive content and then trying to translate that audience once it was at critical mass to action in the real world. And so the the kind of pithy term that we would use is URL to IRL, and that's action in real life. The resistors page specifically partnered with a few very real organic groups, activist groups in the United States for a counter protest that was scheduled for August 10, which is, I think, what, frankly, what I would hope was one of the forcing functions for, for a company like Facebook to take action. And so that counter protest was against the Unite the Right, which is a group that coordinated protests that turned violent last year on August 10th in Charlottesville something that, that I think that this audience will absolutely recall. And so one of these assessed pages that was taken down was actually coordinating a real counter-protest against that, that event specifically here in Washington, D.C. And that's, that's a pattern of behavior that's extremely significant. Uh, another example of this, Jason, happened in Houston in 2016 when uh, IRA-linked Facebook accounts got uh, promoted and also promoted the protest and counter-protest uh, around Muslim Americans in the Houston area. Let me let me ask you this, Graham. What's, is there anything materially different? I think we've talked about it a little bit, but is there anything materially different this time around than from what we've seen in previous disinformation campaigns? Well, I think that it's getting harder to detect uh, so, for instance, in this scenario, based on what, what Facebook said publicly, what we can do is there wasn't, for instance, uh, one user or one kind of puppet master that was running 60 of these pages, right? It's less automated in a lot of ways and more kind of narrowly tailored uh, to insert themselves into very polarized conversations that we're having in the United States. So that's that's something that uh, kind of sets it apart. And then I think that the focus on it, real action inside of the United States. So, again, what we were talking about in terms of translating online communities into protest communities on the street, uh, that is that is also a degree of sophistication that should be pretty frightening. And and that is to say it's, it gets a lot harder to separate the critical mass of political activism in the United States, which is to say political activism is a, is a cornerstone of democracy. Any, any healthy democracy has to have some degree of – has to have a high degree of political activism. Political activism is a good thing, uh, but I think that what these influence operations are designed to do is to insert into that very real political activism, that very real political sentiment – and then make it a little bit more polarized to, again, drive us further apart than closer together. And so that's a, the translation from just, you know, online communities that, that share content that make us really angry and translating that into actual behavior change, uh, whether that's, you know, deciding to take a Friday afternoon and go uh, join a really big protest or whether that's in, in the actual ballot when you actually are casting ballots. That is that's really sophisticated and a pretty scary prospect. It's you can have outsized influence with an influence operation by poisoning the well of a of a much larger thing. And that's what it's designed to do. So how do we know if we're being 
influenced by, in Facebook's words, inauthentic actors? What what can we do to make sure that we're not listening to Russian trolls instead of our fellow Americans, alleged Russian trolls? <laughs> That's a really big challenge for, I think, every single citizen right now, right? Because you, if you think about the definitions of success of, a, of an influence operation, take Take the case this week. I mean, in one scenario, the influence operation goes undetected and it leads to a very real counter protest in D.C. that has the potential for violence, frankly, if we're judging on on what happened with similar protests last year. So that's one scenario. And that's a that's a pretty successful scenario if you're trying to sow discord within within our politics. And then in the other scenario, on the flip side, if they are detected, then They've sown doubt in the conversation that you and I are having right now and that uh, Americans across the country are having around the dinner table, right? They've sown or they've uh, they've cast a cloud over our entire discord to, to make everybody a little bit more suspicious and a little less trusting in our own political discourse to make us question like whether or not everything is a Russian bot, which, by the way, not everything is a Russian bot. Uh, and that's something that I think we all have a responsibility for, whether it's these big groups like government and politicians or the tech and social media companies or, frankly, traditional media, but most of all citizens, most of all real people. And so how can real people engage online in a way that is additive rather than maybe being manipulated by alleged Russian operatives? I would say have a healthy degree of skepticism on how – you're coordinating, right? If if, if you wouldn't – I'm from Colorado, so I think about camping. I wouldn't go camping or into the middle of the woods with a group of people that I didn't know and trust. And so why would I not apply that same standard to the people that I would affiliate with in political activism where we're making a very public movement or a very public statement? And so I think that there's a level of due diligence and and just good citizenship that – we can all engage in a little bit more to be a little bit more resilient against something like Russian influence operations or alleged Russian influence operations. Do you think that people maybe a little bit older than us don't take the internet as seriously and don't see it as more than just kind of a toy? That's a, that's a, feels like a loaded question to be asking a millennial. No, I think, uh, well, let me answer that question with another question is, did you try turning off your device before before asking the IT question, right? I'm trying to think back to the conversation that I had with my grandparents when they were trying to decide whether or not they were going to get onto Facebook. I think that's partly true. One of the things that, at least in the wider conversation on how to create more digital resilience, we talk about a lot is is media literacy. And I think that's kind of a crutch for a lot of different things. For me, it includes four things, which is, yes, media literacy. And that means making people, including older people, more prepared or more informed in how they consume news or how they consume information. So that's point one. And then point two is a category that I would call digital literacy. And digital literacy is making sure that people are more prepared and know exactly how to use devices or how to navigate platforms like Facebook or Twitter or Google. And I think that that specifically probably applies to older folks a little bit more. Although I will say my grandmother is better at Facebook than I am. And then there's this third bucket that I would call cyber hygiene. And that's making sure that people are 
are more aware of their data footprint and what their kind of uh, online. What's the best mattress for you? Well, if you're an egg or a kitten, check out the competition. But if you're a human person, put your body on a nectar mattress. As well as award-winning layers of comfort, you can sleep easy knowing you got incredible value. Mattresses start at just $499, and you get hundreds of dollars in accessories thrown in, as well as a 365-night home trial and a forever warranty. Go to Nectarsleep.com. profile is so like whether or not they're using multi-factor authentication whether they know how how their data is tracked on social media platforms like facebook and then i think that the fourth bucket is probably the most important which is at heart just basic civics like how to how to participate in a democracy in an additive rather than negative way those four things kind of at least for me are four four major pieces in how we solve something or how we create more digital resilience against something like alleged Russian influence operations. And frankly, how how can we make democracy stronger? Well, this is something these pages existed now just a few months before the midterm elections. Do you have any idea, any thoughts about what it is people might be seeing as the midterms come closer? Yeah, the the way that we would at least at the DFR lab scale scale research with a with a team that uh, doesn't have the the reach across politics at an industrial scale, so politics in uh, large races across the country, are three broad categories, and the first is extremely polarizing issues, and we've talked a little bit about that earlier, but that's migration, that's various protests, that's racial issues, gun control, polarized issues that we know influence operations have kind of tried to insert themselves into and influence in the past to, again, drive us further away than closer together. That's that's one of the most direct ways where influence can or chaos can be sowed within our discourse. So that's bucket one. And then bucket two would be key swing states where you could have outsized impact on the balance of power in the United States. And so, you know, if I'm, if you're sitting in the seat of someone who would sow disinformation and chaos, you'd be well-placed to target a few very specific places with limited resources, right? And then the third, and this is kind of a further off bucket, but there were no candidates mentioned in the content that was shared on the pages that Facebook took down, except for one. And it's not a candidate in the 2018 midterms. He's a candidate in 2020, and that's Donald Trump. And so what we would predict or deduce from that is that the third kind of category of disinformation around the 2018 midterms will be figures who bad actors would assume have a future. Right. So they're going to be A-B testing narratives against people that they would assume will be running in 2020 or will have an outsized platform in the future of U.S. politics. And that's just kind of investing in if you're a bad actor, that's, that's a category that I would say is investing in the future of sowing disinformation. And the one example in that is that 
the narratives against Hillary Clinton that were most effective in 2016, whether that's a, a number of the leaks and things like that, weren't necessarily started in 2016, right? They, they, they were seeded well before. And a nation like Russia uh, had been engaged in for a long time because Hillary Clinton had a long public life. So those are the three broad categories that that at least our, our team is is thinking through. And I'm sure that there are more. I'm sure that we will be unpleasantly surprised by some content and and some content will be kind of what is expected or what, what we would assume it will be. But that's kind of how we're looking at it. That's how we're scaling and scoping research. You make it sound as if it's less that these groups are out and out creating falsehoods and more that they are enabling people's worst impulses. Yeah, I think it's a mixture of both. I think that, that it's kind of uh, this process where they're probably throwing as much content up against the wall to see what sticks. And and some of that is content that is outright, outright falsehoods. Some of it is content that is designed to insert itself into conversations that and make it a little bit more okay to kind of go to the extreme end of that conversation, what I would call lowering the barrier cost of polarization. And some of it is a mixture of both of those things, right? Like out, outright falsehoods that that lead to increased polarization. So you've had a longer time to look at all these pages than anyone else has. And I'm wondering, did you see anywhere any active calls to violence? Not that I've seen, although it, our team is still is still looking at the pages that uh, – or looking at the content that we were able to look at and grab – before action was taken against against those pages, and so we're what I would say is that we had a, a an initial take, an initial assessment of a few kind of overarching categories of things that we saw, and, and we're kind of parsing, we're taking a step back to parse through and try to get a higher confidence assessment in those conclusions. But it, were there calls for violence explicitly, as in you know on Thursday we're going to take to the streets with pitchforks and guns? Not that I've seen, but I wouldn't rule that out as we're as we're trying to go through more more of the pages. Uh, another interesting aspect of this story, something that Facebook said during its press conference, is that an IRA linked account, uh, this Russian troll farm out of St. Petersburg, was did briefly take control of one of the disabled pages for seven minutes. What do we know about that? Is that a slip up, or is it you know a deliberate tell? Do we know anything? I think that it's a very interesting data point, right? Uh, it's that's not something that m my team would have much insight to, but you know, taking taking that data point at its at face value, it is a significant tell in that you know that the IRA or the Saint, infamous St. Petersburg Troll Factory was at least paying attention to what these pages were doing if they took control of it for any period of time. So whether that was some some operative that fell asleep at the keyboard and, and absolutely took control of something they weren't for a few minutes or whether it was a slip up that showed their hand. What it does tell us is that they were paying attention. Is there any harm to the Russians actually having people in America understand what they're doing? <laughs> uh, I mean, does, does it just sow more confusion? I think it does. I think that there there aren't many costs for a country like Russia to sow disinformation. And by that, it, 
if you look at the cost benefit analysis of an influence operation, and then you look at the Russia's geopolitical goals, whether it's putting the U.S. and allied countries on a on a back foot in a con on a conflict like Syria, you know, whether it's legitimizing their illegal annexation of Crimea, whether it's splitting NATO allies further apart so that you can deal with them individually. If you're making a cost benefit analysis on how to do that, then it costs a lot less to make a bunch of internet content than it does to put a lot of tanks in Syria. You can have an outsized impact geopolitically with with sowing a little bit of chaos in U.S. elections, in U.S. politics, in politics across Europe, politics across democracies, frankly. And that's something that should be an asymmetric threat that, that we need to guard against. And I, I don't think that we have many costs for a country like Russia doing that. But, you know, what is the consequence? They they get named and shamed in the international forum. That hasn't had much of a deterrent factor for a country like Russia uh, in the recent past. So why would it on an issue like disinformation? And that's a key question geopolitically that I think uh, governments more so than companies are going to have to be responsible for and something that we don't have a very good answer for yet. What do you think of the way that this story has been reported? Generally speaking, the the challenge of disinformation is a collective challenge. And so this will be a circuitous way of answering uh, that specifically. But, I mean, you look at a, a challenge like disinformation, and there are three broad groups that are, gener- that are involved. Uh, one is government. The second is tech, private sector, social media companies, whatever you want to call them. And then there's traditional media. And in any given case, for instance, the 2016 case with Podesta leaks, where there was this kind of drip, drip, drip coverage and content went from social media platforms to the front page of all the major dailies inside the United States, whether it's the New York Times or the Washington Post or whatever. You know, those three groups are equal parts uh, if were to take action on that and it was only one of those groups that was acting in a silo, then we might as well pack up and go home because we're not going to solve the collective challenge. So in the case this week, did did media cover the story in an appropriate way? I, I would leave that to your readers. But at the same time, I think that the, the top lines of this story uh, are a major social media company took proactive action against a an influence operation. And second top line is, you know, a major a major social media company is working with outside partners to solve a really hard challenge, whether that's with U.S. Congress or with U.S. law enforcement, whether it's with it, third party kind of independent analysis like that at the DFR lab. So I think that kind of information sharing is really, really good. And then there's this kind of other storyline that came out, which is Facebook takes action against the activist community. And I guess my thoughts on that are disinformation is designed to – so yes, the overall – the overall – the vast majority of content within within these pages was probably very real and organic. But at the same time, if it's based on the foundation of a Russian influence operation, then that's probably not a good thing. That's probably not a good foundation for political activism in the United States. So it, I think that there's this – that's a much harder conversation that we need to have within the activist community and within our political discourse. But I think in terms of the the media coverage around this story this week, it's been objective and fact-based, which is 
the one of the foundations of democracy. So so A plus to everybody, to to you guys and to others. Uh, thank you, Graham Brookie. Thank you so much for joining us and explaining the story to us. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this bonus episode of War College. In addition to the normal ways you can get in touch with us, on Twitter, at war underscore college, and on Facebook, www.facebook.com slash warcollegepodcast, we have a new website, and we've put up the transcripts of past shows on it. That's www.warcollegepodcast.com. So... Check it out. War College is me, Jason Fields, and Matthew Galt. We will be back next week.